well, he had a bad day, so he was drinking, and that's why he tried to choke me. By the time you do get a sense of what's going on, you've been in denial for a while. 90% of them are, are women. They're not hitting their boss. They're taking it home and hitting the wife, the kid, the dog. The problem is sometimes kids will withhold the information from their parents. Friends will see it and don't want to get involved in it. Don't say, I'm going to drive there and take you away because she might say, that's the worst thing you can do right now because he's here. That, that was one of those aha moments you have. It's like, this happens to everybody. Say, you are a survivor. You got through the other side. You are still here and you have the ability to affect positive change. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. Today, it's my honor to speak with Maria Macaluso. In January 1998, Maria joined the Women's Center at Montgomery County, Pennsylvania as the executive director. The Women's Center is a domestic violence service. Since 1976, the Women's Center has been a volunteer community organization. Their mission is freedom from domestic violence and other forms of abuse. Serving approximately 5,000 unique individuals every year, the Women's Center offers critical services that positively impact those affected by abuse. The list of services includes a 24-hour toll-free hotline, 800-773-2424, assistance with filing protection from abuse orders called PFAs on-site at the courthouse and accompaniment at preliminary hearings, plus legal advocacy and options counseling, and a lot more. Maria and the Women's Center at Montgomery County are proud and appreciative of the 185 volunteers who tirelessly donate their time and talent to the cause. Their programs, policies, and procedures reflect a strong commitment to empowering women. Maria, welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you for having me on with you, Bill. I want to say meeting you about, probably was it about a year or so ago? Um, yes, it was. You're one of the kinds of people that inspires me to keep doing this work because I mean, we deal with unimaginable tragedy in this work and you personally and your family in this life. And to see you giving back to others to prevent that from happening and to inform others. It's just really inspirational. So I really want to thank you for that. Wow. That's that means just to see you transform your pain into something so positive. It's just been really, like I said, motivational for me. Well, I didn't see that coming. So now I have to figure out how to speak with a lump in my throat. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very nice of you to say that. I can tell you from my standpoint, and I, (laughs) I, I feel most of the time I don't have a choice that I have to do this. And I know I do have a choice, but I, I would imagine a psychologist would say, this is the, this therapy chose you kind of a thing. So, but I appreciate that very much. Let me ask you a few questions if I could. So what circumstances led you into the domestic violence field as a career? You know, why did you decide to take this route? So I will tell you, I've always been someone who's, who sort of followed that instinct if something felt good and positive. So I did a lot of volunteer work before I joined the center. Um, I was doing work in civil rights around fair housing, and I saw how women were disempowered. So I started joining and volunteering organizations like Women Against Abuse in Philadelphia with a goal of trying to understand the dynamic. And then something weird happened during that time. Now, I'm a college graduate. I was first in my high, I was valedictorian in my high school. So I'm, I, I kind of think I'm kind of intelligent. And I was in a relationship with someone and we'd only been going out a couple of months and I was doing something nice for him. I was inviting him to buy tickets to a show in New York for his birthday. And he blew up at me, started yelling at me on the phone about how, you know, how could I bother him? And I bought into him like, oh my God, I must've done something really uh, awful to do <laughs> this. And, and it made me realize that we frequently as women that we buy into that i must have done something wrong or else somebody wouldn't treat me this way 
And I kind of realized at that point that if I could believe this, like, and again, not saying I'm a genius, but if, I, if this, this is something that's so broad, um, it happens to so many men and women, but mostly women. And so I wanted to be a part of the solution. So I started volunteering in more organizations. And then when this job opportunity came up, my friend saw it and said, this is what you need to be doing. And so, and he's right, because I didn't think I'd be here 23 years later doing mm. this and still finding it rewarding. You know, just staying with your story, I didn't I didn't know that part of your story, but staying with that for a second, when did the light come on in your head that told you, wait a minute, there's not something wrong with me. There's this guy has issues or I was fortunate because this was like all took place in an afternoon where I called him asked him what I thought was the reason why I want to buy these tickets. They're a couple hundred dollars. He's screaming at me. I get off the phone. I'm feeling horrible. He calls me back. I'm so sorry. And there's the tears. And it's, it was for me, it was really a quick aha. And I started to look at other behaviors. I, I knew a little bit about his other relationships. I'm like, wait a second, there's something with him. So for me, it, it ended at that point. But um, I really saw how easy it was to go down that black hole and to think, because you want to try and justify what the person's saying and, and, and say, okay, there must be a basis. And I always tell my staff, when you argue with a, a crazy person, they don't get sane, you get crazy. Uh. And I started to see that in myself. I was trying to interpret his garbage through a, a lens that wasn't even true. So, so it, for me, like I said, it was, it was within a week, I wasn't even talking to the person anymore. So few people turn that around and realize, wait a minute, I'm okay in this story. This guy has something going on and I don't want to be a part of that. So I'll go to my other options. There's plenty of fish in the sea, so to speak, right? Yeah. And I think I was fortunate because I was already doing different kinds of volunteer work, especially through my, my tent, uh, tenants right and work where I saw women who were oppressed in various ways. So I think I had uh, a leg up because I was seeing it in other people and I could then see how it was imp impacting All right, me. That's good. You know, I'm curious, uh, domestic violence field as a career choice is about having to come face to face with the worst that humanity has to offer. And I'm just wondering, how do you and others deal with it? I mean, you know, I, I could picture somebody saying, wow, you know, I want to I want to help people. I want to help women. I, mostly, you know, mostly it happens to women. You know that. But the day in, day out of seeing what what people can do to abuse other people seems like it would drain you and you'd say, you know, I have, I have to have relief. I can't do this, but, but you're still at it. And, and all these other people just, they keep coming back and, and doing it again. How do they do that? I will say with a lot of our staff and volunteers that we really look at ourselves to see if we're starting to burn out on it. And then we take a break from the hotline. For me, um, I think it's because a lot of people approach us very emotionally and they get caught up in the story. For me, I think if I can keep a clear head, I'm a possible solution. I'm at least a compassionate listener for somebody. So I got to keep my head and help them understand something that's an unimaginable. So I can make a difference. And if I can keep focusing on that role, and sometimes it means that person's going to project anger toward me um, because I'm a safe place to put that anger. So I try and take my emotion out of it and say, how can I be a stable person for this, for what, what's happening to this person? I wasn't part of the problem. Let me be part of the solution. So I, I think I come at it from a positive, but less emotional. I'm not going to own what's going on with the person, but I'm going to guide you through this the best I can. That sounds really wise. When you were saying that, I, my, for some reason, my mind jumped to someone fighting a fire. You know, it's mm -hmm. like yeah. you see what's going on. You know how bad it can be, but you're not going to help anybody if you go crazy. And if you go, oh, my God, it's a fire. Your whole house is burning down. Somebody could die versus helping people get safe. And right. And then afterwards, and you can have whatever whatever response afterwards you can in your own private right. time. But again, you put yourself in this position to be a resource to that person and they have to be your priority. When we train volunteers, I always tell them Lifetime Movie Channel was the worst thing for this work because everybody thinks there's someone calling hiding in a closet and I got it or they get and they get so much into their own heads of I have to say the right thing. I have to just no. you have to be true and be there for that person and get rid of all the garbage in your head that you're bringing into wow, this. That is so wise. What would you say are the that maybe top two or three lessons maybe you've learned about life. I mean, I'm going now to, from very details to, to very big picture, but mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think doing this all these years and, and looking at what happens, you see cases that go bad, you see cases that get better, you know, somebody gets away right. and gets back to a fairly normal life. How does that make you feel about life itself? Um, a couple 
couple of things I've learned from this job that a lot of times people say to me the words, it's not fair. And so I go into the situation saying, you are absolutely right. This is not fair. There's nothing just about this. And there's no solution that's going to be satisfactory because you shouldn't have experienced this pain. But let's grow from there. Let's build from there. Let's accept everything that's happened has been horrible. But what can we do to bring you back some level of restorative peace or something like that? I've also learned to acknowledge you can you can you can approach any problem. I tell my staff, you can eat an elephant one bite at a time. So when you're talking to that person, what's the piece of the elephant we're going to focus on today? If I can help you with that small piece and we just building blocks and we get there. So I've learned to approach most problems that way is breaking them down and looking at them as solvable. And then the last thing I've learned from this about the dynamics of abuse, and it's made me question a lot when we deal with children, is how much for women comes down to what we were taught as children. Like we were, all the fairy tales were told, if you just kiss that frog, if you just love that beast by virtue of your unconditional love, you can change this person. And I think that's the thing that, that, that I have to let go of that. I can't change that. It's not my responsibility to make somebody good. And that's the lesson I try and share with my family members and, and young women that I come into. Yes, we learned all that, but it's not, it's not our role to fix things. It's not our role to overcome the ugliness in somebody else just by virtue of loving them. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you said that. As you were saying that, I thought I just, this is such, such a great way to put it because I know my daughter was that person. She was a fixer-upper, and and I'm sure she felt like with the, you know, with the situation she faced at the end, that somehow she was going to bring this guy to a better place. And I've met a lot of women over the years who felt, for one thing, that they themselves maybe were the problem, or if they thought that they both had problems, that they could maybe fix that other person and and let them see the light and make them better than they were, you know, get the best version of that other person. And very rarely, it does it work? I mean, the batting average is so low, it's single digit kind of thing. It's- I have to tell you, when I first started doing this work, I was talking with a woman uh, who was nationally speaking about her situation. She was from Texas and she's very Catholic. And she went to her priest when, when her husband kept hitting her and abusing her. And the priest told her, well, maybe if you cook something different, maybe it's the Irish cooking. And she went out and got cookbook. And I've talked to so many young women, especially one comes to mind who was a doctor and she was telling me, well, he had a bad day. He had to fly. So he was drinking. And that's why he tried to, to, to choke me. I'm like, okay, so let's go forward. If you had kids and he, they, he came home from a trip and the bike was in the, would it be okay for him to strangle the kid because the bike was in the driveway? And she was able to step out of it. But, but too often, like we just, again, we're just looking for reason in an unreasonable thing because as women, that's what we are taught to do. And I don't want to diminish men, but I just know as a female, so much of that comes through the fact that I have to be better. I have to rise above. I have to do something different to fix mm. this. Just shift to a different place for a moment. From a terminology standpoint, I know these answers, but I want to hear you give these answers for our audience. But what is the difference between, in your mind, domestic violence, dating violence, intimate partner violence? How do you see distinctions between them? And I know there's plenty of overlap. There is. So for me, I look at it like domestic violence is the broad umbrella of uh, violence that includes family members, uh, violence against people in our lives, not like the barroom brawl, but like my uncle, my grandmother, whatever. Dating violence, there is a relationship that's there. They're not, there's not marriage or whatever, but there is generally an intimate partner relationship. Intimate partner is that is that whole spectrum that dating violence, I always think in math terms, a subset. So dating violence for me is a subset of intimate partner violence. And they're both subsets of domestic violence, which can include grandson beating up grandma or you know, whatever that is. So it's different. It's just it's defining the relationship between the two people. Is it an intimate relationship? And so when I go back to the criminal aspects in Pennsylvania, whenever there's a law put forward to criminalize domestic violence, to make it so that police can arrest somebody for that, it always focuses on the intimate partner violence. And that leaves off a whole bunch of people who wouldn't qualify to get that protection. So for me as an advocate, I'm always looking for the most comprehensive legislation bill law that will say all of these people are protected. So again, big picture domestic violence is when there there is a family, familial status, intimate partner violence, and then the subsets of those would be the dating violence and the partner, the ex-partner, the ex-spouse kind of thing. 
And mm -hmm. similarly, how do you differentiate between these terms, sexual abuse versus sexual violence? Is, is there a difference in your mind? So again, I'm going to go with my big umbrella. Um, typically for me, sexual violence is that uh, big picture of the harassment, the assault, the coercion, the lack of consent. Sexual abuse in the work that I do is usually deemed uh, to involve children who are being oh, sexually violated okay. in some way. So that's how clinically we, in our work, we separate it out. So abuse usually, re sexual abuse usually refers to children who can't give consent. Um, I'm not of an age that can give consent. Where sexual violence is that much broader okay. picture of what. Okay, of what that's we're great. Thank you. You know, I know from I, I did a Zoom meeting. I guess about a year ago at this time with, with uh, uh, one of your teams, and it was great. Just such an upbeat group of people considering they'd been through a whole day of doing their jobs and answering hotlines and all. But, but that Zoom meeting, it was like an energy center. I was just happy they included me. But I know from talking with them, I threw out the term victim and they kind of stopped me in my tracks. And they said that at the Women's Center, they go way out of their way not to refer to people as victims. They want to refer to them as survivors. Can you talk about that? Right. Yeah. Victim focuses on, on making people feel this happened to me and I can't, this is, this defines me now. What happened to me defines me. And to us, it's more empowering to say, you are a survivor. You got through the other side. If you're a family member, what we call significant other, you are still here and you have the ability to affect positive change. So to me, mm -hmm. survivor is empowering. It's hopeful. It's looking toward the future, not toward the past of what was done to you as a victim. So I think survivor gives back control to you of your life. And that's the most basic difference. And also to me, it's somewhat offensive to tell someone they're a victim. It's funny when we, when we see signs, sometimes um, you may be a victim of domestic violence. You may be a victim of abuse. Well, do you ever see yourself as a victim? And I, I had this discussion with a, a state rep once who was trying to get a sign, a billboard to say, you may be a victim. Are you, are you a victim? I was like, no one ever, that's their life. If you're in a domestic violence relationship, that is how you live your life. You don't stop and analyze and say, I'm a victim, but my husband hit me after dinner. My husband did this after that. So they, they, it's it's trying to define someone by these events that are occurring of which they're they're being brutalized by it. So let's take ownership and say you are a survivor because you're coming through this. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. And you know, when I when I think of the term victim, it's almost like somebody has been branded with that and mm -hmm. they can't do anything about it. You know, they're stuck in that spot. There's there's no getting out of that cell, you know, and a survivor can be any number of things. It could be somebody who's a work in progress, who's feeling their way through or doing what they have to do to stay safe, but get away from what's going on all the way to somebody who this happened to them 20 years ago. I'm going to say, Bill, that, that I would consider you a survivor. You survived, again, the worst, most unimaginable thing, but you haven't gotten stuck in that. I mean, it, of course, it's going to impact where you go and what you do, but you've turned it into how can I transform this into something that will help others. And that to me, it embodies what a survivor is going to do. I'm going to build, rebuild my life. I'm going to rebuild the life for my mm -hmm. kids. I'm going to make things better. So I think it's aspirational and positive to, yeah, to call that's great. a survivor. I, I, I like that very much. Let me go into some of the myths and stereotypes about domestic violence that that are really misinformed, misguided, like domestic violence typically happens in the worst parts of cities or in towns, or it happens mostly with certain ethnic groups or races. So what's the truth about it? So the truth is it is all economic populations. It's all age groups. It's different genders. It's all races. And I'm going to just give a quick example of when I first started doing this work, this woman who was very wealthy, um, her husband was very wealthy. He was um, an executive in a, in a large corporation and she was driving through Chestnut Hill, which is an affluent part of, our, of Philadelphia, dripped in diamonds and fur. And her husband got mad at her and took her head and was banging it into the dashboard mm. of the car and then kicked her out. She was bloodied. And she, you know, and from the outside, they had this beautiful home. She and again, she was draped in diamonds and furs, going out to a party, and that that was one of those moments. Like those aha moments you have is like this happens to everybody. We all can 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 get into this situation. So don't just assume because somebody's living in a nice house and oh god, nothing could be happening there, or you know they're driving a nice car. 
I mean, we have all these stereotypes. And one of the first things we do in our training is to deal with what we call those isms that we carry with us, that we assume that it can't be this group of people because they're too good or, you know, they don't do this kind of thing. It, it has been across all religions in my work. It's been across all ethnicities. There hasn't been a group that, that you can't expect it from. You know, you're right. And one of the things I ran into a piece of information a couple of years ago that I thought was a stunning way to look at it was that if you are one of the people who doesn't believe it happens in your neighborhood, your zip code, then you don't pay any attention to it. Right. So you don't yeah. need to know things like warning signs because it doesn't apply to you. And if you hear something that if you knew the warning signs, you might say, whoa, it sounds like one of those toxic relationships. If you don't know the warning signs, then the warning signs are going on around you potentially and you're just skating free and this is not me. This doesn't happen to people like me. It doesn't happen to my kids. And you're just flat footed. And, and I would have to say that uh, our family was one of those, honestly. You know, I mean, our first real introduction to it was a call from detectives one night. And the rest is history, you know, but, but it's too doggone late. So I, I think it's because of that black hole you get sucked down as, as the person. And the family is just trying to rationalize it, too, that it, by the time you do get a sense of what's going on, you've been in denial for a while because you, you don't think so. I did tell you earlier about this woman. Her mother contacted me. Daughter was a medical student. Could have been a model. Was gorgeous, but she still bought into it. Very wealthy family. I would say the difference is the responses could be different if you have resources financially, maybe you can get out of the situation sooner. Um, if you have a church behind you that supports you, maybe you'll have more support, but it's not going to pass over you simply because I'm this and it wouldn't happen to my family. Yeah. It, it, and that's really one of the reasons to even do this whole podcast series. Mm -hmm. The other thing I run into at times, I feel like some people don't really want to face it, don't really want to talk about it, almost as if if they learn about it, it increases the chances that that could happen. It's almost like this pariah type of thing, you know, like they don't really want to hear what I want to talk about. They don't want to read the book. And I've run into this a few times. I mean, I've offered to give the book to some people and they're like, you know, I really appreciate it, but you know, that's really not us. And reading that book, Bill, you know, I knew your daughter and I'm just going to feel bad. And, and I'm thinking, well, you have a daughter. That's why I want you, to, I don't want you to read the book so much for you as for you to be able to protect your daughter. Right started doing this in the 90s. And we had doctors that didn't want to ask basic questions, are you safe at home oh, when they saw an injury? Because they felt if they asked that question and they got a yes answer, what do I do? I don't know how to treat. So we have a fear of, of even suspecting that there's violence because then somehow we have mm -hmm. to do mm -hmm. something or we're going to lose that person if we confront them with it. They won't, you know, your daughter would be mad at you or something. And that fear is what empowers the abuser because they know that people don't want to get involved. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. It's true. Yeah, it's like, uh, it is kind of a tag you're it situation that if somebody hears about it, then they feel like, oh God, now it's my responsibility. And then I got to go down that rabbit hole with this person. And it's like, I don't know enough about this. I don't want to get involved. It's somebody else's business. It's too personal. All those things. I do want to say too, at the Women's Center, one of the things we've done for a number of years, we've offered support groups for what we call significant others. Um, because family members struggle with that. I think this is happening. What should I do? So they become the client that like, we're here to support you so that you can provide the support your daughter needs. So those family members have their own issues that they're struggling with as well, because it's, it's going beyond the two people involved in the relationship. So we encourage people, if you think someone in your family or in your life is in an abusive relationship, call the hotline. It's anonymous. You don't have to tell us your real name and say, I, this is happening. What do you think I should do? I've had neighbors mm -hmm. call and say, I think this is going on next door. How can I help? I've had UPS drivers. We, we have a great relationship with UPS. I'm going in this home and I'm pretty sure. So here's how you could be. So, so ask the question. Don't be afraid. You're not branding somebody, an abuser. You're, you're trying to make sure people are safe. So in your mind, how do people get stuck in these relationships that appear to others, meaning friends and their maybe family members, even their co-workers, how do people get stuck in these relationships that just seem to be unhealthy and dangerous? You know, the question that I'm often asked is, well, if you're in a relationship like that, why don't you just get out? So 
depending on where they are in the relationship, sometimes they can't get out because of financial reasons or kids, but going back even earlier, what people need to understand, most domestic violence abusers are charismatic, can be charming. I mean, you don't fall in love with somebody because they're horrible. They know how to portray, you know, the, the charming prince and, and I'm, you know, I'm doing all this for you. And yes, I'm jealous because I don't want other men to look at you. And some of the things that they're doing are actually, we as women take as complimentary. Oh, he was so worried about me. He was upset. So we ease into it, like, you know, the, the, this shallow end of the pool. And by the time we can't swim, we're all the way at the deep end. So it's not like a switch that suddenly I'm in a relationship and this person's going to you know, hitting me. It's that gradual thing that you don't even realize it's happening. And by the time you realize it, you still remember the part of you that loved that person. You remember the life you're building. So part of it is that there is an emotional connection there frequently. And then there are economic, financial things. There are all kinds of things that are happening that limit your choices, that limit the resources. Your family might not know about it and you're embarrassed to tell them. They're supportive of him because he was wonderful. They think he's great. So it's not just a cut and dry, he hit me, I'm leaving. It's he, we had this wonderful life and then he lost his job and he hit me. Like, so we look for those reasons. So I think it, it sometimes for people to leave, it has to be either be so egregious, the violence, somebody, they have to have a really strong support system that they know that they can get help or they don't want that life for their children because we know the cyclical nature of violence that if your children see this, they are more likely to either become themselves victims or become abusers. Again, it's, it's a very complex thing, but it's not as simple as let's leave. Because if it, it would just be if I met you today and you started abusing me and I walked away, well, yeah, I didn't have a relationship, but I've invested months, years, whatever in you. I have to believe there's something good in you. Yeah, I think that's very well put. And really from the outside, it can look so easy. It's like, well, if he's doing this, this, and this, then get out of there. And there are so many invisible strings attached that they don't see that is possible. One of the things with COVID that I've said to people, it's given us a small window to look into the life. Imagine when you're isolated, you're trapped in a home with someone, you don't see any, any dark, you know, darkness lifting. Imagine that's your life all the time, that your actions are controlled, your ability to leave is controlled. So um, we got a, a brief window of what it's like to live as as a, I'm going to use the word victim here, because at this point you are the victim when you're living in that system, cut off, isolated, no hope of what's going to happen. I have no idea today or tomorrow if this will change. That's the life of someone living in this. And, and it even starts to play around with your sense of reality. What's real, what's not, what what exists out there. You know, you mentioned COVID and I'm, I'm glad mm -hmm. that it appears that we're coming out of that. But I can remember talking with you last year and other domestic violence agency directors, and it obviously took a bad situation for people who were in these relationships with husbands or significant others in one way or another. And by these stay-at-home orders, they were more stuck for more hours, days than ever. And that when they came and they appealed to the domestic violence agencies, whereas they might have in the past been able to get to a halfway house of some kind or some shelter, you had such such a long list of people, you were putting them in hotels in some cases. Is that right? Because right. I'd heard that. It was, yeah, it was safer to put people in hotels, scattered site housing. So they're not at one sort of dormitory mm -hmm. building. And there were, fortunately, because there were fewer people in hotels and motels at that time, there was more vacancies because of the eviction laws that were preventing evictions. I'm not saying you should be evicting people, but there was less affordable housing. So we couldn't necessarily say, okay, pack your bags, we'll get you into this home and we'll pay your rent there. So the choices were much more limited. Mm -hmm. I will even say one of the appalling aspects of COVID, one of the most uh, appalling for me, it was in our medical advocacy project where we had nurses and doctors who were going in every day into the trenches, dealing with people who had COVID, going home, they'd come in the next day with black eyes and stuff. So you knew there was violence going on in their home. Oh, now, if it's because family members were upset about them possibly bringing in, or if it always existed, but but the violence became more egregious and the solutions and resources were much more limited, I would say, that we had less options to move someone out of this situation. So yeah, that was, I would say, the one of the greatest challenges of doing this work in that time. The courts weren't accessible for the most part for people. It was really dark that what are the options? What can we actually offer you right now as a safety 
place. So you have a family member and family members wouldn't take because they were worried about you bringing COVID in. And then abusers would use COVID as a threat. If there were visitation, I'm going to get our son sick and send him back home to you. I literally had people call saying, and it was a different kind of abuse than we'd ever seen before. So weaponizing visitations to say, I'm going to get you through COVID. That is an, a new level of insidious behavior, isn't it? Ugh. Yeah. I'm sorry to be so bleak with this. I've just, it's just like, again, when you see, you asked earlier about what you see in this work, you see some of the ugliest aspects of what people are capable to doing to someone they love or allegedly, allegedly love. Right. When you think of domestic violence overall, what percentage of the emotional or physical abuse is happening to women versus men? So I will say for our organization, if we're serving about 5,000 adult victims a year, 90% of them are, are, to, are women um, and 10% are men. It's, and, I, and that's been pretty standard all the years I've been there, but the violence is different. And mostly for a lot of the men, it could also be you know in, in same-sex relationships. Frequently with men, there's a concern, she mm -hmm. hit me. If I hit her back, I'll be arrested. More with the legal nature, we work with men. Women, I think, and this is changing, I know, over time, but women don't tend to have the uh, power and control issues in the situation. Men abuse from power and control. They want to dominate. They want this. They they want to reduce this person to their slave. Women, when they're physically violent, usually are emotional about it. So men are controlled with the anger that they're that, that they're directing at this person. Women tend to be hitting out of emotional aggression. If that makes sense. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts, available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a read. The information in this book has already saved lives. I, I used to speak with someone um, who did, uh, he passed away, but he worked with Batter's Treatment Program, and we talked about men and women in Batter's Treatment and why men... It, why men have to go into it. And he said, you know, he gets he would get angry that people would call it anger management. But he said an abuser can manage their anger. They're not hitting their boss. They're taking it home and hitting the wife, the kid, the dog. So to call it anger management really shows a lack of understanding of the dynamics of abuse. True domestic violence is about power and control over someone who loves you unconditionally and taking that love and turning it on them. You know, I keep saying the same things over and over. That That is a great insight into that. That, that really is. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad you're telling us all these things. So I'm curious, you know, now we've talked in kind of a broad way about domestic violence, and this, mm -hmm. is, this podcast is trying to get more to dating violence. Right. But can you tell us what percentage of young adults ages 16 to 24 experience dating violence from, from what you recall? So I'm going to tell you what I think is really scary. Um, we worked with small groups in high schools where there'd be like six girls, six boys in small work groups. And in all of those groups, at least one or two have said, I've been in a relationship. Um, I've had young teenage boys say, I may be, I think I'm doing, I may be abusive because I've done this. So if you have 12 people, at least two, and that, those are the ones who are willing to come forward. I, I still think it's very pervasive. I think, um, the problem is sometimes kids will withhold the information from their parents of what's going on. Um, their friends will see it and don't want to get involved in it. So I would say if we say one out of three, one out of four adult women, I would unfortunately say that's probably the same statistic for, um, for teenage girls. I'd say all of us have experienced at least one in four have experienced some degree. Like I told you my story, which wasn't a physically violent I think that's that happens very frequently with women. And when you give those numbers, the one in four, the one in three, is that physical violence? Is that emotional and physical kind of lumped together? I think it's the threat of physical when we talk about that and beyond. Okay. So okay. it's not you called me ugly. It's 
I'm going to kill you if you keep doing this. So maybe you didn't hit me, but but a real physical threat, imminent physical threat and beyond. I'd say at least one in four women have experienced that fear. Yeah, that's that's helpful. That's helpful to know. Just for a moment in terms of detecting something going on for a bystander, and a bystander could be someone's friend, someone's family member, a neighbor. Mm -hmm. But for those people, are there ways to detect or spot when a person might be in trouble or in in an abusive relationship before it's too late? So they they have meaning like they're the bystander. It's not happening to them, but it's happening to somebody that they know. What ways can they spot or detect that, you know, before that friend of theirs is is truly stuck or gets injured or worse? I'm going to first reference in the 90s. There's a wonderful commercial sort of app for, to, to get people to get help and said, you'd, you'd hear a burglar next door breaking into a house. And then you'd hear another situation where you'd heard fighting. And it said, you would call the police if it were a burglar. But we don't call the police if we hear our neighbor being hit or screamed at, like we're reticent to do that. I think that's part of that bystander culture that says, well, they're in a personal relationship. I don't want to get involved. I would if, if, if they were breaking into somebody's car or something. So I think we have to get past that and not worry about, um, I don't want to interfere. But if you see someone coming into work with a black eye, missing a lot of days of work for strength, like not I'm sick all the time kind of things, ask those questions, care enough to ask. There are ways, and that's what we work with family members, that you can say, I'm concerned about you. I love you and I'm going to support you and I'm going to be here. But I'm concerned when you tell me he won't let you come to the party this weekend. I'm concerned when you tell me this. So it's it's learning how to talk to that person and express concern, not judgment, and say, I will still be here no matter what for you, but I need to be able to tell you this is how I feel right now. And this is what I'm worried about. So we all, I mean, I don't have to tell you the signs necessarily mm-hmm. that when you mm-hmm. see um, somebody's afraid, you see them start changing the way they're dressing and, and not wearing makeup and things like that because they're afraid of, of their, their partner thinking that they're a tramp and they're a slut and they're walking around you know, trying to entice men. You'll see changes in behavior. You'll see them pulling back from things. They might not come to family events. So when you see those changes, care enough to say, hey, I'm concerned. Can you tell me what's happening here? And I told you, UPS drivers going into a house will say, you know, I, you know I, I'm mm-hmm. noticing mm-hmm. something where the kids are hiding. They're afraid. Yeah, yeah, those those are all really good. You know, I was thinking, let's say one of our listeners knows someone who appears to be in an abusive relationship. Maybe they're at that point where they're saying, you know, this isn't just you fell down in the garden and you have a bruise on your arm, which I saw at work one time. Someone came in and and I said something to this woman I work with. And I said, look, you know, my situation in life and I see bruises on your arm. I'm just telling you, this worries me. And she talked about being in her garden and fell down on something and all that. And I said, well, I'm concerned if you ever want to talk about it. And she said, well, it's not what you think and all that. But at least, you know, I tried. But if one of our listeners is thinking that they, they've kind of struck upon, you know, this really does seem to be going on. What should that person do? They're listening to this podcast and they say, I think we've got one here. What would you tell that person to do right now? I would tell them two things. Do not cut yourself off from that person because that's what the abuser is trying to do. So if they're rejecting you, if you're, you know, your daughter or whatever is not talking to you, don't accept that. Keep being there. Be that stable source for them. But then reach out to a local domestic violence program and say, I'm really concerned. This person, I've seen this. What can I do? What can I safely do? Because you don't want to hand them a book or a, or a pamphlet about domestic violence that they're going to bring into the home. Get help from your local program about safe ways. Maybe see if there's a support group that they can come to. If you're a healthcare provider, ask the question, do you feel safe at home? We all have it within ourselves. We just have to be brave enough to say, I love you. And whatever happens, I, this isn't going to change, but I just need to know that you're okay. And if I'm wrong, I'll accept being wrong, but just know I'm always the safe place for you to come to. Um, it's the reassurance because this abuser is telling them nobody cares you. Nobody loves you like I do. Um, you want to reassure them, yeah, I love you and I'm going to be there no matter what. And again, if I'm wrong, I'm okay with being wrong, but I'd be worse off if I didn't even ask the question. Yeah, one of the things, Maria, that that I think about is, you know, I've often asked myself over the years if I had known more. I mean, again, our situation was I got a call from detectives and there wasn't anything I was going to do. But I've asked myself if this were happening to my daughter 
if she were married or dating some guy. And I was pretty doggone sure that that she was in an abusive relationship and it, and it was physical and emotional, what I would do. But that leads me to want to ask you this question. What do some people do that has proven not to help? Because you see that's taking place and you kind of want to get your car keys, get in your car and drive over and see this guy and lay down the law. Yeah. You know, it's a really tricky question depending on the people that are involved. But sometimes what I like to tell people is trust your loved one to, to, to give you the sign. So don't say, I'm going to drive there and take you away because she might say, that's the worst thing you could do right now because he's here. You, you can't become controlling over that person. You need to respect them and support their decisions, but say, I am concerned about you. I am worried about what happens. Let's develop a plan. And so include them in the solutions. What would work best? If you're going, you know, if he thinks you're going out for a doctor's appointment, I'll pick you up and get you out of there. So work with them. Don't do the same thing the abuser's doing and control their choices. Um, we always say, let the survivor drive the bus. It's not always going to be perfect because people will get hurt, but really listen, hear what they want, offer them a way out, offer them the resources, but respect ultimately uh, what they're doing. I, I worked with a woman once who had, um, it wasn't Parkinson's, it was cerebral palsy, or, which, but she wanted to get her youngest child out and then she was going to get help for herself. And it wasn't what I would have done, but I said, okay, let's have a plan. And it was like a two-year plan and how she could stay safe during that time. If she really mm. needed to stay there and I needed to respect her, right? Okay, what room should you avoid? How can you live safely for two years? So it's it's engaging that survivor in whatever your plan is and being open and honest with them and saying, how can I keep you safe? Um, what can I do for you to make you feel safe? And uh, it's that don't fix it for them fix it with them. I have to say my jaw dropped and you said a two-year plan. A two-year plan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I could tell you that statistically that the, people in domestic uh, violence situations will frequently stay for up to seven years. They will reach out for help numerous times. They will keep going back. Again, what we talked about earlier, it's not that they're going back because they love the life, but they have children. They, ha they don't have financial resources. Their family isn't there. So we recognize, and what I tell people about our hotline, it's not like every time somebody calls where, yeah, yay, we saved that one. It's the fact that they know they're getting a caring compassionate, empathetic person who's going to talk to them about what's going on right now and how do we keep you safe. So they are long-term plans that we're dealing with frequently. Yeah, I spoke recently with a detective and he talked about that, he was using the example of men and women, the woman's being the abused one, that a woman will leave seven or eight times before she leaves for the last time. Does that ring true? Yeah. Yes. And that is the experience that we have had, um, you know, minimum of five times, I would say sometimes mm -hmm. in, in a long-term relationship that you've had over years. Um, and it's, it's, again, it's that, can I fix him? Can I save this? What about my kids? The, the abuser frequently can turn the kids against the mother. And so she's afraid if she leaves that she will lose her children, that they, that they already think that she's the problem because of him. So you have to respect. Part of building them into survivors is to say, I validate your experience. You are not stupid. You do know what you're doing. You know this person better than I do. You can tell me what will work. So respecting them and giving them back the confidence in themselves to make decisions, recognizing that it's their decision, not yours. So how do I keep you safe in whatever your choice is? Yeah, that's very smart. Thank you. That's, that's a nice full answer. Thank you. It, it's not the good answer for people who feel like if I had only done so, whatever, we can't, if only didn't happen. So let's just see going forward. Can we help others with that and recognize? Yeah. I mean, I, I can't, I mean, I'm sure anybody listening to this thinks about how they would handle it. And, and I listened mm -hmm. to this, I've thought of this hundreds of times, I'm sure. But my thought is to get over there and, and eject that person from that entire situation and bring them into the safe zone. And it just still boggles my mind that it doesn't work. I could tell you, it could also easily turn the family member into a target of anger and rage. You know, that abuser can then say, I will kill your father if he ever comes back here again. And, and that becomes the weapon of, if your family gets involved, I will hurt them. So again, it's, it's, you have a lot to undo, but you undo it with the survivor and say, how do we deal with this? Sometimes I'll say, is there a family member or a friend that he respects and listens to? Can we talk to them and talk and maybe they can intervene on your behalf? Like, you know, his parents have to see what he's doing. So it's unique to every person. I wish there was one answer, but that's why in our hotline calls, we're talking about what's available to this person 
and it's very different and it's a different menu for each one of them. And these are some of the things that we can do. I'm just curious now, again, if somebody sees this going on with someone they care about, work situation, mm -hmm. friend situation, family member, anything, where would you direct them first? I mean, would you say, well, you know, go Google some websites on this or get a book or... I would always say call a hotline first. Call a domestic call a violence hotline. hotline because no matter where you are in the country, there are programs and people have to go through training. In our program, you have to do a minimum of 40 hours of training plus 12 hours a year. And it focuses on all of these discussions. Um, there are books we can direct you to, but there's nothing better because again, every situation is different for you to call and say, here's what I'm seeing. What do you think? And, and talk about that. And that's what hotlines are for. They're not just only for the person experiencing directly the violence, but for those significant others that want to know how to help. I'm curious with the people who operate the hotline, do most of them have stories that they could tell of their own? You know, have they been through this and therefore they do that? Or are they just nice people who happen to, to devote their efforts there? Many of our volunteers especially some of our staff. One of our long-term staff is actually a survivor. 30 years ago, she came through the shelter system with her children and started working for us. But there are also um, a lot of our volunteers who are survivors. We do have a rule that you have to be out of the abusive relationship for at least a year. You have, If there's a protection order, that has to have expired for at least a year. Because otherwise, you bring your own stuff into the into discussion. So I'm talking to you and I'm thinking about, well, my boyfriend did this to me. So we need to make sure there's enough distance that you are really in the moment with the person you're talking to. But it, it's very helpful to have the perspective of a survivor in our movement. It helps us learn. One of the biggest challenges that we have doing this work is that domestic violence changes a lot. Where we can access victims change a lot. We learned a few years ago that there's a correlation between abuse of pets and abuse of, of family members. So we started working with veterinarians to identify, you know, dogs being brought in more often with injuries because again, unconditional love from a dog. So we keep mm -hmm. having to learn where we can better reach survivors and where abusers where we can access them to maybe get them out of the situation if they're, you know, if, if we can do it legally or whatever. So that's the thing that keeps me up at night. Is there a group that we're missing? Like, should we go to bakeries? I, you know, what, like, so actually someone at a senior center told me the safest time for some elderly victims is at 10 o'clock in the morning because the, the, the man, the, the retired man will go to out for donuts and, and, and you'll see the, the, bar, the parking lot of like the Dunkin' Donuts full with these men who congregate. If you want to call them, call during that time. So it's understanding the different types of abusers and how we can reach the victims that are very specific to their situation. So it's, it's all, we're always learning and growing and changing our outreach to adapt to that. I'm curious, we've talked about quite a few things and I'm just wondering if there's anything that you think I might've missed or I should have asked you today. The only thing I'm going to say, and, and I hope this, I, I don't want to be preachy with it, but all you can do is your very best. And so as a family member, you can't own or, what happened. You can't blame yourself if only I had seen this or whatever. Just be our best in the moment. Reach out for help if we suspect something and do what you can based on what the survivor needs. So I think we all need to be kind enough to ourselves to realize that, you know, we're doing the very best we can to help. We're not part of the problem. We're part of the solution. So I want to ask those parents who are listening, you know, watch what's going on with your kids, but recognize that they're going to keep some things from you. Um, recognize that there's only so much that you can do, but then reach out for help to say, is there something I'm not doing? But don't own what the abuser is doing to your family member. Don't own what they're doing to somebody else. Just be part of the solution. Yeah, I think that that really lifts a lot of that off of them. I'm glad you said that. I'm just curious. I ask this once in a while at the end of these these episodes, but let's say you're walking out to your car. What represents a good day for you, defined by you. Right. In terms of my work that I gave my very best that day, again, I go back to, I didn't create that problem that they're dealing with, but I gave them the best part of myself to deal with it. That makes it possible for me to sleep at night is that every day I'm thinking of new ways to help people, new resources to help people. And I'm in the moment when I'm talking to them and I'm giving them the best part of myself. Again, if something were to happen to that person, I would always feel horrible for what happened to somebody, but I would know that I, I assisted somebody. I helped them see some glimmer of light some way out. That's good. Thank you. What advice would you give to someone who might be pursuing a career as you did in domestic violence in that area? You know, I, I just, I, for me, it's bringing 
to the situation, clarity of mind. And I, this ever so often I get somebody who clearly thinks they're going to save the world or they're very emotional and bringing that emotion. And that's not going to work in this. You have to be the rock. You have to, in, in that storm, you need to be the stable person. So come at this work knowing it's not about you. Get out of your own head and get into what's going on with somebody else. So I'm not saying you have to be selfless, mm -hmm. but you have to be open to letting go of, of what's what your reasons are, your self-interest, and truly recognizing you have the ability to change a life right now. Yeah, I can I can see how if I were to do what what you do there and your counselors do there, hotline people, everybody, I probably would be measuring myself with some kind of a batting average in mind, wins and losses and things like that. And mm -hmm. and I'm glad you said that because it's really unfair. You know, there's so much that's out of your control. And I and I I think the best advice is to concentrate on process rather than result. You know, you keep trying to improve the process. Maybe yes. each time you handle one of these, you're a better listener. You know, you pick up other bits and pieces of great advice, or you pick up maybe a little sooner in the conversation what's really going on. It doesn't take you forever. You know, you kind of get there faster. So I think that that's really wise. I did want to end with, um, well, with one thing, the story of that moment. Um, I was working with a woman and her three daughters. She was an adult woman. They were adult uh, children. And we're sitting in an office with them and they were saying how unfair it was that their mother had to move out of her home and move somewhere else. And they kept stressing, it's unfair. We need to fight her to get, to get back in that house. She, and I was like okay, we could fight to get your mother back in that house and she could get killed. So let's, let's put, that's what I said earlier, put fair aside. There is no fairness. There's no justice in this. Where is the safety in this? And it's just always recognizing that you can't make a horrible situation suddenly fair and just. What you can do is, is restore humanity to the situation and get that person to stability and safety. So if you can do that, you're really, you're really making a big difference to them. You can't erase what happened. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I mean, it just redefines again, it kind of it I think I think we kind of decide early on where the goal line is and I think we have to kind of put it in a different spot. And so many times and not just on this whole subject we're on today, but so many times in my life I wanted a certain thing, I didn't get it and I got something better. So, mm -hmm. you're right. It isn't all about get mom in the home, keep mom in the home. It could be a whole different thing. Be open to to different perspectives and different resolutions. Exactly. So Maria, thank you for spending your precious time with us. My admiration for you and all those working in the domestic violence field is just limitless. You know, every single day you're handling life or death situations and helping innocent members of our communities become educated and stay safe from the insidious menace we know is domestic violence. You and your team are truly angels living among us. I mean that sincerely. So please accept my, my thanks today. Appreciate it. Okay. And if I could say back to you, I mean, this is a job. I mean, I, I love what I do. But when I see people like you that are stepping up from their heart and doing this, again, you make me want to be my best self because you're doing it from the heart. Um, and a lot of us got into this as a profession, but you're living it. Uh, and thank you for that's that. That's very sweet. Thank you so much. I look forward to chatting with you again sometime, okay? And me as well. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. One in three women will suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but can happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence, but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts back then, we believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs.